Well, hopefully you still have your Bible open to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah. Uh, we, as as uh, church in Burbridge, we've been going through this book together uh, and uh, have really, really been enjoying what the Lord is, is speaking to us through his word. And um, uh, yeah, let me pray for us before we jump in. We'll be looking at chapters 24, 25, and 26 this tonight. Let's pray. Father, I ask that uh, you might come. Uh, Lord, as we have sung, may we see ourselves, know ourselves to be children of the day uh, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, I ask that uh, you give us eyes of faith to see what is to come and to know uh, how we are to live now because all that we see will pass away. May we be people who can live bold lives, uh, free lives, joyful lives um, of obedience, knowing that our King is coming and his reward is with him. Uh, Lord, empower us uh, to live for your glory now as children of the day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, something will bring an end to the world by anyone's estimations. Everyone realizes this, right? Something will bring an end to the world by anyone's estimation. It's not a question of if the world will end, but when and how. Uh, scientists like detectives trying to solve a future crime trot out the usual suspects for us. And we've all heard of them, right? An asteroid impact that destroys life on Earth. A super volcano. I think there's a volcano under uh, the, the Midwest United States that's bigger than some states that could erupt and just destroy everything. Uh, some viral pandemic, either naturally occurring or man-made. Climate change, killer robots that are out to get us one day. Um, an atmosphere fried by gamma radiation. Nuclear war. I read an article recently that was nine ways the world might end. And the last of the ninth one was, it's probably going to be a culmination of several of these things all put together. Uh, but even if you're the kind of person here tonight who thinks all these catastrophes can be averted, Mankind's ingenuity will take us to the stars, and one day we'll, we'll, we'll be a, a species on multiple planets, and nothing will be able to, to wipe us out. Even if you think that, C.S. Lewis points out that there will be an end still. He says, the sun will cool. All suns will cool. The whole universe will run down. Life, every form of life, will be banished without hope of return. From every inch of infinite space, all ends in nothingness, and a universal darkness covers all. There's a great humanist thinker in the UK, Bertrand Russell, you may be familiar with him. He knew that C.S. Lewis was right, and he famously said this. Uh, this is a quote I use often. Uh, Bertrand Russell said this, that all the labors of the ages... All the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And the whole temple of mankind's achievement must inevitably be buried under the debris of a universe in ruins. No philosophy which rejects this can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolds of these truths can the firm foundation, uh, and on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built? 
Now, I know those are very cherry thoughts for an <laughs> afternoon in the sun, especially we went out to Ilkley Moors today, and as I drove up, I thought, this is going to be one of my favorite places ever. Mm-hmm. Just as we walked along, it was beautiful, beautiful. But as, as you look outside and see the sun shining, it's hard to think it's all going to come to an end. One day, well, everyone thinks, uh, every thinking person realizes one day this will all come to an end. The world as it is now will end. Everyone recognizes it. The question is not if, but when. But most people sidestep the when question with a response much like King Hezekiah. Remember King Hezekiah? Uh, Actually, it was Isaiah who confronted him in 2 Kings uh, chapter 20. There were emissaries that have come from Babylon, and Isaiah says, where are these guys from? What did you show them? So they're from this distant land. You may have never heard of it. Babylon. What did you show them? I showed them everything. And Isaiah says, these people are one day going to come and take everything, including your children's children, into exile. And you remember Hezekiah's response? The word from the Lord is good. Because he thought, at least that means there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Right? And that's how we sidestep the question. At least, if everything's going to end, at least in my days, things will be okay. Right? We, we think the same thing. But we're not even guaranteed that, are we? Peace and prosperity in our lifetime. It's the horrible events like the Manchester bombing, like the attack last night in London, that wake folks up to the fact that it could all end suddenly. The world as we know it could come to a sudden end tomorrow for us. But how will the world end? And why will it end? Those are questions Isaiah explores. And the place he brings us to is very different from Bertrand Russell. It's not the firm foundation of unyielding despair. There's another habitation for the soul in a world that's destined to end. Uh, Let's see the how and the why of the world's end in the book of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 24. We've had it read for us already. Um, Look again at verses 1 through 3. Behold, the, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. It shall be as with the people, so with the priests. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. This covers everyone. Verse 3, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. To which a humanist like... Bertrand Russell says, that's no big surprise. We could see it coming. We, we know there's going to be an end. That's not a big surprise. The surprise is why it's coming to an end. Look at verse 4. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The, hi- the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The primary enemy of this world's continued existence is not the disasters of nature. It's not the killer asteroid. It's not the supervolcano or the mutating virus. The primary enemy of this world is the defilement that we bring to it. And not so much a pollution of our rubbish, but a pollution of our sin. 
of our rebellion, of our cosmic treason. Look, you see that verse 5. It's because these the, the inhabitants have defiled the earth. It's us. We've transgressed the laws. We've broken the statutes. We've violated the everlasting covenant. Uh, this is why Isaiah says that futility and ruin happen in nature. Verse 6, it's because of us. The curse devours the earth. Why? Because we have brought the curse on the earth. Uh, it must end. This world must come to an end. Isaiah tells us what scientists can't. He tells us the why of the world coming to its end. It must end. Why? Because we have defiled it by our many acts of treason against its maker. That's the negative answer why the world must come to an end. Uh, We'll see that's not the whole answer, though. Isaiah has a very positive one. Why the world must end? Because the world as it is is not suitable. It's not good enough for what God has in store. So, what will the end of the world, uh, as we know it, what will that mean? Isaiah tells us what it will mean. It will mean the end of all shallow pleasures. We see this as we move through the kind of the poetic description in verses 7 through 13. Um, I'm just going to pick out a few things to look at. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. Right? The, the, the shallow pleasure of wine and its temporary ability to make merry is done away with. The time for drowning our cares in drink and food is over. Why? Because the substance of what good food, good drink pointed to, that's what's coming next. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. There will be an end to needing that feel-good song to lift your spirits. Look at verse 8. It says, The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. Right, there's going to come an end to needing that, that song to lift your spirits. Uh, um, I, I realize that I do this. I need this from time to time. If I'm, uh, if I'm feeling down, uh, sometimes I'll, I'll speak to our, our Amazon Echo Dot Alexa. Play Sweet Home Alabama. And, and, that's, and that starts something going in my, in my heart. Uh, but that's, that time that I need that is going to end. Right? And when I feel homesick, I, I hear that's, you know, uh, big wheels keep on turning. Hear me home to see my kin. And I, I feel it. Brings a smile to my face. But that time's going to end when, when I am truly home. When the music that all of the music pointed to is what, uh, is what I experience and, and, and what we come to. There, there will be an end because a deeper, more real music awaits us. We see the end of all these lesser things. And the end of the things we most needed losing. Look at verse 19. Just turn the page there if you've got the church Bible. Verse 19 says, The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. God's breaking of the world is meant to bring an end to the guilt and rebellion of the old world. Right. Uh, the old world perishes because of the guilt of its rebellion. It, it falls never to rise again, never to raise its fist again in the face of its maker. But, you might say, isn't the world more or less guilty by association? 
You know, the, the created order is broken. It's under a curse. Why? Because it's where rebels live. It's where rebels like us live. Uh, what about those who are actually doing the rebellion? That's what we see uh, Isaiah speak to in verses 20, uh, 21 and 22. It says, On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. The end of the world, as it, as it is now, spells the end of divine patience for all authorities who rebel against God's good reign. Whoever would be their own king, and that's that's kind of all of us, right? We all want to be our own king. Whoever will be their own king, whether human beings or heavenly beings, you will be shut out from God's new world. Not even the light of sun and moon can usurp God in the new world he's making. Look at verse 23. It says, the, then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. His glory will be before his elders. In the new order of things, the light of sun and moon are no longer needed. You know this? Here, the moon will be confounded, the sun will be ashamed. The light no longer needed. Why? Because God, the source of all light illuminates the world by His glory, by His glorious presence. God has reordered the world in such a way that His glory is now its light. The the Lamb is the light of the world. God is bringing an end to the world as we know it. And if you haven't caught on to it yet, this end is a good thing. Look at verse uh, chapter 25, verse 1 and 2. O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old. Faithful and sure. For you have made a city a heap. The fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. And you might say, what? What's going on there? What is he talking about? Uh, how does one thing follow another? Do you see? I mean, does it seem odd to you? Verse one: Yeah, your God, I will exalt you, my my God, O Lord, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. They're good. It's true. And what's the example? You brought devastation to a city, right? You tore it down, never to be built again. It seems odd until. You realize this. It seems odd unless you know what else the end of the world's cities and nations and military might means. Unless you know what the end of these things is meant to produce. And that's verse 3. Look at verse 3. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. God's glory, honor, and reverence are what's in view in the world's ending. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book that's the the end for which the world was made. This is it. I'll I'll spoil it for you. It's the glory of God. This is the end for which God made the world. We've gloried in our own might and ingenuity for long enough. Now it's time to enjoy and glory in God's might and His wisdom. It's Now it's it's time to stop reveling in our little mud puddles that we, we play in now. 
uh, in order to know the immense glory of the seaside that stretches on and on. The, the world's end is a plan executed in perfect faithfulness because it spells an end to our blindness to God's glory, our blindness to God's character. That those who've long ignored God will give him glory because of this. Look at verse 4. It says, For, they're going to glorify you. Why? Verse 4, For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. God receives glory at the end of the story. Very similar to a playwright at the end of the play. Right? When does the playwright come out and take a bow? It's when the play's over. When, when, it's, when the drama's done, the author comes out and takes a bow. God receives glory at the end of the story because people now begin to comprehend in all that's happened, his goodness. You are a stronghold. You are a shelter. You are a refuge. They, they begin to comprehend his goodness, his genius, the greatness of his character. So thus far, the main idea has been this. God will bring an end to the world as it is now. And for the most part, the reason given thus far, chapter 24, beginning of, verse, beginning of chapter 25, the reason why the world's coming to an end is us. It's our sin. Now, Isaiah fills out the fuller reason for the destruction of the old world. God will bring an end to the world as it is so that he might make it fit for a banquet with us in his presence. Look, this is, this is beautiful. Look at chapter 25, beginning in verse 6. This is what the word of the Lord says. <coughs> On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Beautiful. Notice first uh, that God's banquet, the banquet he's making, is for all peoples. You see that verse 6? This is the, on this mountain the Lord will make a banquet for all peoples. And someone might say today, how, how very forward-thinking of Isaiah. Yeah, a multiculturalist will say, how very forward-thinking, have all peoples gathered together. Uh, how very forward-thinking and non-ethnocentric of someone in the 8th century B.C. And we, and we, to which we say, yes, but realize this. This has been God's plan from the beginning, hasn't it? All peoples gathered together uh, to be his. Right? God's going to gather together a people from every nation for himself, living under his good rule and displaying his glory. That's always been God's plan. Notice, too, in these verses that there's not a complete disconnect between the old world God has destroyed and the new world God has made for us to dwell in with him. Look again in verse 6. 
He says it's on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make uh, a, a banquet for all peoples uh, of rich food, uh, well-aged wine, uh, rich food full of marrow, aged wine well-refined. Yeah, there is discontinuity. Uh, many things have changed between the old world and the new. Uh, the sun and moon, no longer needed, right? I mean, that's, that's definitely different, right? Because God himself is a light uh, to, to this universe. There is discontinuity, but there's also continuity. Uh, there is this mountain. There's wine. There, there are meats here. Uh, but even with the continuity, what you get now is the best. Right? I've yet to see a mountain big enough that all peoples could gather upon it. Right? I, I, I myself uh, take very little pleasure. I take some pleasure in meat. I take very little pleasure in wine. Um, I, can't, I can't bring myself to enjoy it. Uh, but on this day, what is it? It's the finest of meats and best of wines. You better believe it. I'll be enjoying it then, right? This, this is the best. Uh, one day we'll find that all of our pleasures in the old world were but shadowy foretastes of our pleasures in the new. So think about this the next time you enjoy food. Enjoy wine. That what you're enjoying right now is but the foretaste of the best that is yet to come. The pleasure around the table with friends, with family, is but a small, meager foretaste of what is coming, this banquet that God is throwing. Uh, yeah, and even even if you get very little pleasure, like me, out of wine, if I could adapt C.S. Lewis's famous quote, uh, if I find in myself a desire that no wine in this world can satisfy, the most logical conclusion is I was made for another world and another wine that is to come. Uh, that, I mean, that's us. We weren't made for this world. We were made for the world God will remake. So, do you see that God must bring an end to the old world if we're to have these things? God must end the old world if the veil is to be removed between God and man. Look again in verse 7. It says, He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. To the one who says, I just refuse to believe in anything the scientific method can't verify. Right? And I can't see God. God can't be verified. I'm not going to believe. Um, what do you say to that person? I think the first thing I would say is that, well, I'd be a little cheeky, but you know, did you know the scientific method cannot verify the scientific method? So you're, you're stuck in a self-defeating position. Uh, but also, if you could see God, if God did reveal himself to you, you couldn't handle it. The world as it is could not handle it. Uh, you couldn't handle seeing God. Your body couldn't handle it now. Uh, the world couldn't handle it. We and the world must be fundamentally changed and remade if we are to dwell with God, if we are to see his face. But one day, God will remove the veil that's between us and him. And he will remake mortal eyes immortal and pure. And we will see his face. And the reason that we can see his face and live is this. Uh, verse 8. Look again, chapter 25, verse 8. says, he will swallow up death forever. He'll swallow up death forever. God must bring an end to this old world because it's a system built on death. Just begin to imagine all the processes around you that must change if death is removed from the equation.
food chains, right? Predator and prey. Seasons of the year involve death, don't they? Uh, and you, how much of your bodily functions must change if this perishable takes upon itself the imperishable? You, as you are, are not fit for an encounter with God until God swallows up death. You couldn't handle it. You would die. But God will swallow up death. This mortal will become immortal. The perishable will take upon itself the imperishable. We must be changed. And God will do it. He will change us. Um, God will do away with death. And he will do away with every source of our tears. Again, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. God must end the old world in order to do away with what's caused all our tears. This promise is repeated in John's revelation of Jesus, the last book of the Bible. You know this. Uh, John, in his vision of the future, hears the voice from the throne say, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things, the first things, have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The old things, the first things, pass away as Jesus constructs a new world and a new order for the universe, forever divorced from all the old causes of pain. No more death, no more mourning, no more tears. And thankfully, this means God will remove from us the disgrace of our past. Look again, verse 8. The Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Just imagine an eternity in which we held on to our reproach, our disgrace, the disgrace of our past, the tr- our past treasonous acts against God. Imagine feeling shame forever over past insults to the host of heaven's eternal banquet. I mean, it, it feels awkward now, doesn't it, when you go to a party and you know you've offended the host mm-hmm. at some point. Right? You probably wouldn't even go to that party. You wouldn't want to go to that party if you knew I, I've done something to offend the, the host of it. But now imagine the person who you've offended is God, who will forever play the host. How bad would even the best party be if we were always holding on to our disgrace? Just imagine it. You know, may God grant that imagine it be as close as you will ever come to experiencing it. Because there will be those who've sought to live their lives as their own saviors and as a consequence will have to bear the disgrace of their failure forever. Never to let go of it. The only way to not bear your own disgrace is to have someone else bear it for you. Those who have owned Jesus as Savior and King can cast off all their past disgrace because Jesus has borne it for them. That's what the cross is all about. Right? The cross, on the cross, Jesus takes our sin, our offenses against God, our treason, 
and he bears the punishment for it. So that when God sees us, he sees punishment taken away. Sin paid for. Never to throw it in our face again. Our guilt has been removed. We have received not just slate wiped clean, but we've received Christ's perfect obedience, his righteousness given to us. That's what we were talking about this morning. The righteousness of Christ has now appeared, and we receive it by faith. And this will be the response of those whose tears and disgrace Jesus has carried away. Look at verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. God must bring an end to the old world because it's part of the salvation that he has promised us. All this must end so that something better that's a part of our salvation will come. This is the one we've waited for. So, if this is what's coming, how should we live now? How should we live now? Isaiah says, I'm glad you asked. That's why I give you chapter 26. Look at chapter 26. Uh, I'm just going to pick out a few verses, a few applications as we close. Uh, God bringing an end to the world and a banquet for us means we can live at peace now. Look at chapter 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Now, growing up, uh, I grew up in a Christian family and I heard this verse from my father just as much as I heard any other verse, I think. And he memorized it in the King James. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. And I learned it as a precious daily reality for my father. But it's a peace that's made more precious by remembering the world-ending context in which it's found. Right? Everything's going to end. But guess what? You can be at perfect peace. How? Why? Because your heart is stayed upon him who holds this world and the next in his hands. As all around your soul gives way, and I was talking to to some this morning going through a tough time, but as all around your soul gives way, God would have you be at peace. And he tells you how in verse 3, and then calls you to it again in verse 4. Again, look at verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. How? Why? Why? Because he trusts in you. And here's the call to do it, verse 4. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Right? As Saul we sang earlier was, was so on point that, that Christ is the rock eternal, the everlasting rock. Uh, how are we to live as those expecting all this, all that we see around us to end? How are we to live? We're to live at peace by trusting in the Lord Jesus as our rock eternal. This means we live by faith, holding on to revealed truth, not living by sight or by our circumstances. This opens up a whole new way of living. Look at verse 8. It says, In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. If everything in the old world is going to burn, Guess what? Everything in this world's going to burn. It's going to pass away. Guess what? You're free. You've been set free. You're free to live in a new way. 
You can live to please God, not others. You can live by God's rule, not your own, not your bosses. You're free from the worldly loves that everyone else has in order to live by a new set of desires. Again, verse 8 says, Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. God bringing it into the world should birth in us new desires. Desires for what lasts. Now, when everything else is temporary, desires for what really lasts, what really matters. And ultimately, we see this is a desire for God himself. God being our treasure. So new desires push out old ones. You realize this? That no one ever just changed or changed their habits because they wanted to? Right? You have to have new overmastering affections to push out old ones. You want to get rid of something? You can't just will yourself to. You have to have something you love more now, something you desire more than the old in order to change. And this is what God gives us. Right? This is what the gospel gives us. Uh, I, uh, a new desires that push out the old ones and change the way we respond to loss. Right? If, if we believe that all this is temporary... And my real life is coming. This is just the cover in the title page. The real story is yet to come. Then I can freely let go of things, right? When when uh, when the car breaks down, I'm not devastated. When the things I put my people put their hope in in life, when the when the holiday doesn't work out as you planned, I'm not devastated by it. Why? Because this is light, momentary, temporary. What's to come is forever. It's eternal. That's what matters. We change the way we respond to loss to tragedy, to hurt, and even to the world when all seems well. Another application Isaiah means for us to take away is in verse 12. Look at verse 12. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. That's an amazing verse to me. You have done for us all our works. God bringing an end to the world and a banquet for us means that we finally get to be a people who rest who rest in God's work. Verse 12, For you have indeed done for us all our works. God will bring the world to its appropriate end, and that's not on you. God will provide a new world and a banquet like no other, and it's not your event to cater. God will do all these things. We are privileged to have our part in, in what he's doing. But even our part in what he's doing is not us really working by our strength and our effort. It's him. Remember Paul says, I labored harder than all, but yet not I, but the grace of God working within me. This is really God who's at work. He's the one working. So we can rest like the hardworking farmer. You know Jesus' story, the hardworking farmer? He goes out, he sows the, the crops during the day, and then what does he do? He goes home and he goes to bed and he sleeps well. And while he sleeps, the crops grow and he himself knows not how. I mean, that's us. We can be those who work, leave it all out there on the field, and then we can sleep soundly. We can really rest because everything doesn't ride on our shoulders. God is bringing the world to its appropriate end. He's the one who causes the growth, right? We, we plant, we water, but God causes the increase. He's the one who causes the growth. 
So be encouraged. Be encouraged to rest well, sleep well. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest, not you. He's the host of the banquet, not you. One more application for Isaiah, and then we're done. God is bringing an end to the world and us to a banquet, and that means we're to live like we believe in the resurrection. Look at verse 19. Um, probably my favorite verse on the resurrection in the Old Testament. Verse 19 says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. At least as far back as Abraham, the hope of God's people has always been that God can and will raise the dead. The Apostle Paul said that his life made no sense if there was no resurrection. Remember this 1 Corinthians 15? That he said that if if the dead are not raised and we're still in our sin, we're dying. Yes, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. right? But uh, if there is no resurrection, I above all men am most to be pitied. Why? Because I've made life choices that are foolish if there's nothing after death. right? You should pity me in the way I chose to live beatings and being run out of town, being imprisoned. All these things, if there is no resurrection, you should pity my life choices. But if there is a resurrection, then I've run the course. I've fought the good fight. I've lived well. Do you live like your hope is in the resurrection? Have you made choices with your life that should be pitied, except that there's a resurrection and a recompense to come? God will bring an end to this world as we experience it now so that what he gives us next we might have forever. And that should set you free. Now, I'm going to give you my favorite illustration all time right now. Okay, So enjoy. It's John Newton. You know, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, uh, Slave Trader, Become Christian. Um, uh, John Newton told this illustration back in the 1700s. He said, imagine a man uh, in a carriage on his way to New York City to inherit a million dollars. Let's adjust for inflation. A billion dollars. Okay? Uh, but one mile away from receiving his inheritance, his carriage breaks down. Newton says, what a fool we would think him if that last mile he was obliged to walk. He was wringing his hands and weeping to himself, saying, my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. Just one mile away from receiving a billion dollar inheritance. And you see how to apply that, don't you? That's how many Christians live. We live in functional unbelief that we are just one mile away from inheriting the universe as our possession. Jesus says, you overcome, you will sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. You're just one mile away from inheriting everything, and yet we whine and complain when the car breaks down, uh, when something doesn't go our way. But you are one mile away from inheriting all things. And your one mile may be closer to ending than you think. As the sun goes down tonight, entertain this thought. This could be the world's last night. There will be a last night. There will be a last time the sun goes down. This could be the world's very last night. So the question for us is, are we ready for the day? Are we ready for the day? Which is really the question, are we ready for the king? 
Uh, we've had a friend join us in the back here. Oh, no, he's going back out. Are, are, you, are you ready for the day? Are you ready for the day? Are you ready for the king? Isaiah's vision of the end, as you can see, is a far cry from what, uh, of that of Bertrand Russell's, where all ends in nothingness and universal darkness covers all. Isaiah says that instead of a last day and night covering everything, instead of a last day, there will be a last night. Instead of universal darkness, the light of the Creator will cover all. Which of those ends of the world do you believe? Universal darkness or everlasting day? Whichever your heart embraces, Russell is right about one thing. It will be the scaffolding for your soul's unyielding despair or for your soul's unyielding joy. Let's pray. Father, I ask that joy might be ours tonight. Lord, that you would make every heart here a believing heart in the Lord Jesus. May we embrace what is coming, uh, embrace the day as children of the day, because we believe in Jesus as the light of the world and our light, our righteousness, all our good before our God and judge. Uh, Lord, I ask that uh, you would apply the gospel to our hearts. May we see that in ourselves um, uh, we deserve the judgment that we've read about. Uh, we have put our fist in your face and we have turned to other things and sought pleasure elsewhere and, um, and turned our back upon our Creator. But we thank you in Jesus. He's come to restore, uh, come to heal the broken world and the curse that is upon us. And uh, Lord, I, Lord, I pray that um, uh, every heart here tonight would embrace him as king, as Lord, and desire to see his return. Uh, Lord, the world will end, we know it, uh, but may we may it end for us, everyone here, may it end for us in eternal day, uh, with no need to hold on to our disgrace, for you have taken it away, and we will be at a banquet with you forever, in which you will wipe away every tear, swallow up death, and we will see your face and live with you forevermore. May we look forward to that day in faith and in joy. In Jesus' name, amen.